accident, my father found it necessary to give up hand-loom weaving and to enter the cotton factory of Mr. Blackstock, an old Scotsman in Allegheny City, where we lived. In this factory, he also obtained for me a position as bobbin boy, and my first work was done there at one dollar and twenty cents per week. It was a hard life. In the winter, father and I had to rise and breakfast in the darkness, reach the factory before it was daylight, and, with a short interval for lunch, work till after dark. The hours hung heavily upon me, and in the work itself I took no pleasure. But the cloud had a silver lining, as it gave me the feeling that I was doing something for my world, our family. I have made millions since, but none of those millions gave me such happiness as my first week's earnings. I was now a helper of the family, a breadwinner, and no longer a total charge upon my parents. Often had I heard my father's beautiful singing of the Bodhi Rose, and often I longed to fulfill the last lines of the verse, When Alec, Jock, and Jeanette are up and got their lair, they'll serve to gar the Bodhi Row and lichten a our care. I was going to make our tiny craft skim. It should be noted here that Alec, Jock, and Jeanette were first to get their education. Scotland was the first country that required all parents, high or low, to educate their children, and established the parish public schools. Soon after this, Mr. John Hay, a fellow Scotch manufacturer of bobbins in Allegheny City, needed a boy, and asked whether I would not go into his service. I went, and received two dollars per week, but at first the work was even more irksome than the factory. I had to run a small steam engine and to fire the boiler in the cellar of the bobbin factory. It was too much for me. I found myself night after night sitting up in bed trying the steam gauges, fearing at one time that the steam was too low and that the workers above would complain that they had not power enough, and at another time that the steam was too high and that the boiler might burst. But all this it was a matter of honor to conceal from my parents. They had their own troubles and bore them. I must play the man and bear mine. My hopes were high, and I looked every day for some change to take place. What it was to be I knew not, but that it would come I felt certain if I kept on. Besides, at this date I was not beyond asking myself what Wallace would have done, and what a Scotsman ought to do. Of one thing I was sure, he ought never to give up. One day the chance came. Mr. Hay had to make out some bills. He had no clerk, and was himself a poor penman. He asked me what kind of hand I could write, and gave me some writing to do. The result pleased him, and he found it convenient thereafter to let me make out his bills. I was also good at figures, and he soon found it to be to his interest, and besides, dear old man, I believe he was moved by good feeling toward the white-haired boy, for he had a kind heart and was scotch, and wished to relieve me from the engine, to put me at other things less objectionable except in one feature. It now became my duty to bathe the newly made spools in vats of oil. Fortunately, there was a room reserved for this purpose, and I was alone, but not all the resolution I could muster, nor all the indignation I felt at my own weakness, prevented my stomach from behaving in a most perverse way. I never succeeded in overcoming the nausea produced by the smell of the oil. Even Wallace and Bruce proved impotent here. But if I had to lose breakfast, or dinner, I had all the better appetite for supper, and the allotted work was done. A real disciple of Wallace or Bruce could not give up. He would die first. My service with Mr. Hay was a distinct advance upon the cotton factory, and I also made the acquaintance of an employer who was very kind to me. Mr. Hay kept his books in single entry, and I was able to handle them for him. But hearing that all great firms kept their books in double entry, and after talking over the matter with my companions, John Phipps, Thomas N. Miller, and William Cowley, we all determined to attend night school during the winter and learn the larger system. So the four of us went to a Mr. Williams in Pittsburgh and learned double entry bookkeeping. One evening, early in 1850, when I returned home from work, I was told that Mr. David Brooks, manager of the telegraph office, had asked my Uncle Hogan if he knew where a good boy could be found to act as messenger. 
Mr. Brooks and my uncle were enthusiastic draught players, and it was over a game of draughts that this important inquiry was made. Upon such trifles do the most momentous consequences hang. A word, a look, an accent may affect the destiny not only of individuals but of nations. He is a bold man who calls anything a trifle. Who was it who, being advised to disregard trifles, said he always would if anyone could tell him what a trifle was? The young should remember that upon trifles the best gifts of the gods often hang. My uncle mentioned my name and said he would see whether I would take the position. I remember so well the family council that was held. Of course I was wild with delight. No bird that ever was confined in a cage longed for freedom more than I. Mother favored, but father was disposed to deny my wish. It would prove too much for me, he said. I was too young and too small. For the two dollars and a half per week offered, it was evident that a much larger boy was expected. Late at night, I might be required to run out into the country with a telegram, and there would be dangers to encounter. Upon the whole, my father said that it was best that I should remain where I was. He subsequently withdrew his objection so far as to give me leave to try, and I believe he went to Mr. Hay and consulted with him. Mr. Hay thought it would be for my advantage, and although, as he said, it would be an inconvenience to him, still he advised that I should try, and if I failed, he was kind enough to say that my old place would be open for me. This being decided, I was asked to go over the river to Pittsburgh and call on Mr. Brooks. My father wished to go with me, and it was settled that he should accompany me as far as the telegraph office on the corner of Fourth and Wood Streets. It was a bright, sunshiny morning, and this augured well. Father and I walked over from Allegheny to Pittsburgh, a distance of nearly two miles from our house. Arrived at the door, I asked father to wait outside. I insisted upon going alone upstairs to the second or operating floor to see the great man and learn my fate. I was led to this, perhaps, because I had by that time begun to consider myself something of an American. At first, boys used to call me Scotchy, Scotchy, and I answered, Yes, I'm Scotch, and I'm proud of the name. But in speech and in address, the broad scotch had been worn off to a slight extent, and I imagined that I could make a smarter showing if alone with Mr. Brooks than if my good old scotch father were present, perhaps to smile at my airs. I was dressed in my one white linen shirt, which was usually kept sacred for the Sabbath day, my blue roundabout, and my whole Sunday suit. I had at that time, and for a few weeks after I entered the telegraph service, but one linen suit of summer clothing, and every Saturday night, no matter if that was my night on duty, and I did not return till near midnight, my mother washed those clothes and ironed them, and I put them on fresh on Sabbath morning. There was nothing that heroine did not do in the struggle we were making for elbow room in the Western world father's long factory hours tried his strength but he too fought the good fight like a hero and never failed to encourage me the interview was successful i took care to explain that i did not know pittsburgh that perhaps i would not do would not be strong enough but all i wanted was a trial he asked me how soon i could come and i said that i could stay now if i wanted and looking back over the circumstance i think that answer might well be pondered by young men it is a great mistake not to seize the opportunity. The position was offered to me. Something might occur. Some other boy might be sent for. Having got myself in, I proposed to stay there if I could. Mr. Brooks very kindly called the other boy, for it was an additional messenger that was wanted, and asked him to show me about, and let me go with him and learn the business. I soon found opportunity to run down to the corner of the street and tell my father that it was all right, and to go home and tell mother that I had got the situation. And that is how, in 1850, I got my first real start in life. From the dark cellar, running a steam engine at two dollars a week, begrimed with coal dirt, without a trace of the elevating influences of life, I was lifted into paradise. Yes, heaven, as it seemed to me, with newspapers, pens, pencils, and sunshine about me.
There was scarcely a minute in which I could not learn something, or find out how much there was to learn, and how little I knew. I felt that my foot was upon the ladder, and that I was bound to climb. I had only one fear, and that was that I could not learn quickly enough the addresses of the various business houses to which messages had to be delivered. I therefore began to note the signs of these houses up one side of the street and down the other. At night I exercised my memory by naming in succession the various firms. Before long I could shut my eyes and, beginning at the foot of a business street, call off the names of the firms in proper order along one side to the top of the street, then crossing on the other side, go down in regular order to the foot again. The next step was to know the men themselves, for it gave a messenger a great advantage, and often saved a long journey if he knew members or employees of firms. He might meet one of these going direct to his office. It was reckoned a great triumph among the boys to deliver a message upon the street, and there was the additional satisfaction to the boy himself that a great man, and most men are great to messengers, stopped upon the street in this way, seldom failed to note the boy and compliment him. The Pittsburgh of 1850 was very different from what it has since become. It had not yet recovered from the great fire which destroyed the entire business portion of the city on April 10, 1845. The houses were mainly of wood, a few only were of brick, and not one was fireproof. The entire population in and around Pittsburgh was not over 40,000. The business portion of the city did not extend as far as Fifth Avenue, which was then a very quiet street, remarkable only for having the theater upon it. Federal Street, Allegheny, consisted of straggling business houses with great open spaces between them, and I remember skating upon ponds in the very heart of the present Fifth Ward. The site of our Union Iron Mills was then, and many years later, a cabbage garden. General Robinson, to whom I delivered many a telegraph message, was the first white child born west of the Ohio River. I saw the first telegraph line stretched from the east into the city, and, at a later date, I also saw the first locomotive, for the Ohio and Pennsylvania Railroad brought by canal from Philadelphia and unloaded from a scow in Allegheny City. There was no direct railway communication to the east. Passengers took the canal to the foot of the Allegheny Mountains, over which they were transported to Hollidaysburg, a distance of 30 miles by rail, thence by canal again to Columbia, and then 81 miles by rail to Philadelphia, a journey which occupied three days. The great event of the day in Pittsburgh at that time was the arrival and departure of the steam packet to and from Cincinnati for daily communication had been established. The business of the city was largely that of forwarding merchandise east and west, for it was a great transfer station from river to canal. A rolling mill had begun to roll iron, but not a ton of pig metal was made, and not a ton of steel for many a year thereafter. The pig iron manufacture at first was a total failure because of the lack of proper fuel although the most valuable deposit of coking coal in the world lay within a few miles, as much undreamt of for coke to smelt ironstone as the stores of natural gas which had for ages lain untouched under the city. There were at that time not half a dozen carriage people in the town, and not for many years after was the attempt made to introduce livery, even for a coachman. As late as 1861, perhaps the most notable financial event which had occurred in the annals of Pittsburgh was the retirement from business of Mr. Fonestock, with the enormous sum of $174,000 paid by his partners for his interest. How great a sum that seemed then, and how trifling now! My position as messenger boy soon made me acquainted with a few leading men of the city. The bar of Pittsburgh was distinguished. Judge Wilkins was at its head, and he and Judge McCandless, Judge McClure, Charles Shaler, and his partner Edwin M. Stanton, afterwards the great war secretary, Lincoln's right-hand man, were all well known to me. The last named especially, for he was good enough to take notice of me as a boy. In business circles, among prominent men who still survive, Thomas M. Howe, James Park, C. G. Hussey, Benjamin F. Jones, William Thaw, John Chalfant,
Colonel Heron, were great men to whom the messenger boys looked as models, and not bad models either, as their lives proved. Alas, all dead as I revised this paragraph in 1906, so steadily moves the solemn procession. My life as a telegraph messenger was in every respect a happy one, and it was while in this position that I laid the foundation of my closest friendships. The senior messenger boy being promoted, a new boy was needed, and he came in the person of David McCargo, afterwards the well-known superintendent of the Allegheny Valley Railway. He was made my companion, and we had to deliver all the messages from the eastern line, while two other boys delivered the messages from the west. The eastern and western telegraph companies were then separate, although occupying the same building. Davy and I became firm friends at once one great bond being that he was Scotch, for, although Davy was born in America, his father was quite as much a Scotsman, even in speech, as my own father. A short time after Davy's appointment, a third boy was required, and this time I was asked if I could find a suitable one. This I had no difficulty in doing in my chum, Robert Pitcairn, later on my successor as superintendent and general agent at Pittsburgh of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Robert, like myself, was not only Scotch, but Scotch-born, so that Davy, Bob, and Andy became the three Scotch boys who delivered all the messages of the Eastern Telegraph Line in Pittsburgh, for the then magnificent salary of two and a half dollars per week. It was the duty of the boys to sweep the office each morning, and this we did in turn, so it will be seen that we all began at the bottom. Honorable H. W. Oliver, head of the great manufacturing firm of Oliver Brothers, and W. C. Moreland, city solicitor, subsequently joined the corps and started in the same fashion. It is not the rich man's son that the young struggler for advancement has to fear in the race of life, nor his nephew, nor his cousin. Let him look out for the dark horse in the boy who begins by sweeping out the office." A messenger boy in those days had many pleasures. There were wholesale fruit stores, where a pocketful of apples was sometimes to be had for the prompt delivery of a message. Bakers and confectioner shops, where sweet cakes were sometimes given to him. He met with very kind men, to whom he looked up with respect. They spoke a pleasant word and complimented him on his promptness, perhaps asked him to deliver a message on the way back to the office. I do not know a situation in which a boy is more apt to attract attention, which is all a really clever boy requires in order to rise. Wise men are always looking out for clever boys. One great excitement of this life was the extra charge of ten cents which we were permitted to collect for messages delivered beyond a certain limit. These dime messages, as might be expected, were anxiously watched, and quarrels arose among us as to the right of delivery. In some cases, it was alleged boys had now and then taken a dime message out of turn. This was the only cause of serious trouble among us. By way of settlement, I proposed that we should pool these messages and divide the cash equally at the end of each week. I was appointed treasurer. Peace and good humor reigned ever afterwards. This pooling of extra earnings, not being intended to create artificial prices, was really cooperation. It was my first essay in financial organization. The boys considered that they had a perfect right to spend these dividends, and the adjoining confectioner's shop had running accounts with most of them. The accounts were sometimes greatly overdrawn. The treasurer had accordingly to notify the confectioner, which he did in due form, that he would not be responsible for any debts contracted by the two hungry and greedy boys. Robert Pitcairn was the worst offender of all, apparently having not only one sweet tooth, but all his teeth of that character. He explained to me confidentially one day, when I scolded him, that he had live things in his stomach that gnawed his insides until fed upon sweets. End of chapter 3 Recording by William Tomko Chapter 4 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 4 
Colonel Anderson and Books. With all their pleasures, the messenger boys were hard worked. Every other evening they were required to be on duty until the office closed, and on these nights it was seldom that I reached home before eleven o'clock. On the alternating nights we were relieved at six. This did not leave much time for self-improvement, nor did the wants of the family leave any money to spend on books. There came, however, like a blessing from above, a means by which the treasures of literature were unfolded to me. Colonel James Anderson, I bless his name as I write, announced that he would open his library of four hundred volumes to boys, so that any young man could take out, each Saturday afternoon, a book which could be exchanged for another on the succeeding Saturday. My friend, Mr. Thomas N. Miller, reminded me recently that Colonel Anderson's books were first opened to working boys, and the question arose whether messenger boys, clerks, and others who did not work with their hands were entitled to books. My first communication to the press was a note, written to the Pittsburgh Dispatch, urging that we should not be excluded, that although we did not now work with our hands, some of us had done so, and that we were really working boys. Dear Colonel Anderson promptly enlarged the classification, so my first appearance as a public writer was a success. My dear friend Tom Miller, one of the inner circle, lived near Colonel Anderson and introduced me to him and in this way the windows were opened in the walls of my dungeon through which the light of knowledge streamed in every day's toil and even the long hours of night service were lightened by the books which i carried about with me and read in the intervals that could be snatched from duty and the future was made bright by the thought that when saturday came a new volume could be obtained in this way i became familiar with macaulay's essays and his history and with Bancroft's History of the United States, which I studied with more care than any other book I had then read. Lamb's essays were my special delight, but I had at this time no knowledge of the great master of all, Shakespeare, beyond the selected pieces in the school books. My taste for him I acquired a little later at the old Pittsburgh Theater. John Phillips, James R. Wilson, Thomas N. Miller, William Cowley, members of our circle, shared with me the invaluable privilege of the use of Colonel Anderson's library. Books which it would have been impossible for me to obtain elsewhere were, by his wise generosity, placed within my reach, and to him I owe a taste for literature, which I would not exchange for all the millions that were ever amassed by man. Life would be quite intolerable without it nothing contributed so much to keep my companions and myself clear of low fellowship and bad habits as the beneficence of the good colonel later when fortune smiled upon me one of my first duties was the erection of a monument to my benefactor it stands in front of the hall and library in diamond square which i presented to allegheny and bears this inscription to colonel james anderson founder of free libraries in western Pennsylvania. He opened his library to working boys, and upon Saturday afternoons acted as librarian, thus dedicating not only his books, but himself to the noble work. This monument is erected in grateful remembrance by Andrew Carnegie, one of the working boys to whom were thus opened the precious treasures of knowledge and imagination through which youth may ascend. This is but a slight tribute, and gives only a faint idea of the depth of gratitude which I feel for what he did for me and my companions. It was from my own early experience that I decided there was no use to which money could be applied so productive of good to boys and girls who have good within them and ability and ambition to develop it as the founding of a public library in a community which is willing to support it as a municipal institution. I am sure that the future of those libraries I have been privileged to found will prove the correctness of this opinion. For if one boy in each library district, by having access to one of these libraries, is half as much benefited as I was by having access to Colonel Anderson's 400 well-worn volumes, I shall consider they have not been established in vain. As the twig is bent, the trees inclined the treasures of the world which books contain were open to me at the right moment the fundamental advantage of a library is that it gives nothing for nothing 
Youths must acquire knowledge themselves. There is no escape from this. It gave me great satisfaction to discover, many years later, that my father was one of the five weavers in Dunfermline who gathered together the few books they had and formed the first circulating library in that town. The history of that library is interesting. It grew and was removed no less than seven times from place to place, the first move being made by the founders, who carried the books in their aprons and two coal scuttles from the handloom shop to the second resting place. That my father was one of the founders of the first library in his native town, and that I have been fortunate enough to be the founder of the last one, is certainly to me one of the most interesting incidents of my life. I have said often, in public speeches, that I had never heard of a lineage for which I would exchange that of a library founding weaver. I followed my father in library founding unknowingly, I am tempted almost to say providentially, and it has been a source of intense satisfaction to me. Such a father as mine was a guide to be followed, one of the sweetest, purest, and kindest natures I have ever known. I have stated that it was the theater which first simulated my love for Shakespeare. In my messenger days, the old Pittsburgh theater was in its glory under the charge of Mr. Foster. His telegraphic business was done free, and the telegraph operators were given free admission to the theater in return. This privilege extended in some degree also to the messengers, who, I fear, sometimes withheld telegrams that arrived for him in the late afternoon until they could be presented at the door of the theater in the evening, with the timid request that the messenger might be allowed to slip upstairs to the second tier, a request which was always granted. The boys exchanged duties to give each the coveted entrance in turn. In this way, I became acquainted with the world that lay behind the green curtain. The plays generally were of the spectacular order, without much literary merit, but well calculated to dazzle the eye of a youth of fifteen. Not only had I never seen anything so grand, but I had never seen anything of the kind. I had never been in a theater, or even a concert room, or seen any form of public amusement. It was much the same with Davy McCargo, Harry Oliver, and Bob Pitcairn. We all fell under the fascination of the footlights, and every opportunity to attend the theater was eagerly embraced. A change in my tastes came when Gust Adams, one of the most celebrated tragedians of the day, began to play in Pittsburgh a round of Shakespearean characters. Thenceforth there was nothing for me but Shakespeare. I seemed to be able to memorize him almost without effort. Never before had I realized what magic lay in words. The rhythm and the melody all seemed to find a resting place in me, to melt into a solid mass which lay ready to come at call. It was a new language, and its appreciation I certainly owe to dramatic representation, for, until I saw Macbeth played, my interest in Shakespeare was not aroused. I had not read the plays. At a much later date, Wagner was revealed to me in Longren. I had heard at the Academy of Music in New York little or nothing by him when the overture to Longren thrilled me as a new revelation. Here was a genius, indeed, differing from all before, a new ladder upon which to climb upward, like Shakespeare, a new friend. I may speak here of another matter which belongs to this same period. A few persons in Allegheny, probably not above a hundred in all, had formed themselves into a Swedenborgian society in which our American relatives were prominent. My father attended that church after leaving the Presbyterian, and, of course, I was taken there. My mother, however, took no interest in Swedenborg, although always inculcating respect for all forms of religion and discouraging theological disputes, she maintained for herself a marked reserve. Her position might best be defined by the celebrated maxim of Confucius. To perform the duties of this life well, troubling not about another, is a prime wisdom. She encouraged her boys to attend church and Sunday school, but there was no difficulty in seeing that the writings of Swedenborg and much of the Old and New Testaments had been discredited by her as unworthy of divine authorship or of acceptance as authoritative guides for the conduct of life. 
I became deeply interested in the mysterious doctrines of Swedenborg, and received the congratulations of my devout Aunt Aitken upon my ability to expound spiritual sense. That dear old woman fondly looked forward to a time when I should become a shining light in the New Jerusalem, and I know it was sometimes not beyond the bounds of her imagination that I might blossom into what she called a preacher of the word. As I more and more wandered from man-made theology, these fond hopes weakened, but my aunt's interest in and affection for her first nephew, whom she had dandled on her knee in Scotland, never waned. My cousin, Leander Morris, whom she had some hopes of saving through the Swedenborgian revelation, grievously disappointed her by actually becoming a Baptist, and being dipped this was too much for the evangelist, although she should have remembered her father passed through that same experience and often preached for the Baptists in Edinburgh. Leander's reception upon his first call after his fall was far from cordial. He was made aware that the family record had suffered by his backsliding when at the very portals of the New Jerusalem revealed by Swedenborg and presented to him by one of the foremost disciples, his aunt, he began deprecatingly. Why are you so hard on me, aunt? Look at Andy. He is not a member of any church, and you don't scold him. Surely the Baptist church is better than none. The quick reply came. Andy. Oh, Andy. He's naked, but you are clothed in rags. He never quite regained his standing with dear Aunt Aitken. I might yet be reformed being unattached, but Leander had chosen a sect, and that sect not of the New Jerusalem. It was in connection with the Swedenborgian society that a taste for music was first aroused in me. As an appendix to the hymn-book of the society, there were short selections from the oratorios. I fastened instinctively upon these, and, although denied much of a voice, yet credited with expression, I was a constant attendant upon choir practice. The leader, Mr. Cothan, I have reason to believe, often pardoned the discords I produced in the choir because of my enthusiasm in the cause. When, at a later date, I became acquainted with the oratorios in full, it was a pleasure to find that several of those considered in musical circles as the gems of Handel's musical compositions were the ones that I, as an ignorant boy, had chosen as favorites. So the beginning of my musical education dates from the small choir of the Swedenborgian Society of Pittsburgh. I must not, however, forget that a very good foundation was laid for my love of sweet sounds in the unsurpassed minstrelsy of my native land as sung by my father. There was scarcely an old Scottish song with which I was not made familiar, both words and tune. Folk songs are the best possible foundation for sure progress to the heights of Beethoven and Wagner. My father, being one of the sweetest and most pathetic singers I ever heard, I probably inherited his love of music and of song, though not given his voice. Confucius' exclamation often sounds in my ears. Music, sacred tongue of God, I hear thee calling, and I come. An incident of this same period exhibits the liberality of my parents in another matter. As a messenger boy, I had no holidays, with the exception of two weeks given me in the summertime, which I spent boating on the river with cousins at my uncle's at East Liverpool, Ohio. I was very fond of skating, and in the winter, about which I am speaking, the slack water of the river opposite our house was beautifully frozen over. The ice was in splendid condition, and reaching home late Saturday night, the question arose whether I might be permitted to rise early in the morning and go skating before church hours. No question of a more serious character could have been submitted to ordinary Scottish parents. My mother was clear on the subject, that in the circumstances I should be allowed to skate as long as I liked. My father said he believed it was right I should go down and skate, but he hoped I would be back in time to go with him to church. I suppose this decision would be arrived at today by 999 out of every thousand homes in America, and probably also in the majority of homes in England, though not in Scotland.
but those who hold today that the sabbath in its fullest sense was made for man and who would open picture galleries and museums to the public and make the day somewhat of a day of enjoyment for the masses instead of pressing upon them the duty of mourning over sins largely imaginary are not more advanced than were my parents forty years ago they were beyond the orthodox of the period when it was scarcely permissible at least among the scotch to take a walk for pleasure or read any but religious books on the sabbath end of chapter four recording by william tomko chapter five of autobiography of andrew carnegie by andrew carnegie this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 5. The Telegraph Office. I had served as messenger about a year when Colonel John P. Glass, the manager of the downstairs office, who came in contact with the public, began selecting me occasionally to watch the office for a few minutes during his absence. As Mr. Glass was a highly popular man and had political aspirations, these periods of absence became longer and more frequent, so that I soon became an adept in his branch of the work. I received messages from the public, and saw that those that came from the operating room were properly assigned to the boys for prompt delivery. This was a trying position for a boy to fill and at that time I was not popular with the other boys, who resented my exemption from part of my legitimate work. I was also taxed with being penurious in my habits, mean as the boys had it. I did not spend my extra dimes, but they knew not the reason. Every penny that I could save I knew was needed at home. My parents were wise, and nothing was withheld from me. I knew every week the receipts of each of the three who were working my father, my mother, and myself. I also knew all the expenditures. We consulted upon the additions that could be made to our scanty stock of furniture and clothing, and every new small article obtained was a source of joy. There never was a family more united. Day by day, as mother could spare a silver half-dollar, it was carefully placed in a stocking and hid until two hundred were gathered when I obtained a draft to repay the twenty pounds so generously lent to us by her friend, Mrs. Henderson. That was the day we celebrated. The Carnegie family was free from debt. Oh, the happiness of that day! The debt was indeed discharged, but the debt of gratitude remains that never can be paid. Old Mrs. Henderson lives today. I go to her house as to a shrine to see her upon my visits to Dunfermline, and whatever happens, she can never be forgotten. As I read these lines, written some years ago, I moan, Gone, gone with the others. Peace to the ashes of a dear, good, noble friend of my mother's. The incident in my messenger life, which at once lifted me to the seventh heaven, occurred one Saturday evening when Colonel Glass was paying the boys their month's wages. We stood in a row before the counter, and Mr. Glass paid each one in turn. I was at the head, and reached out my hand for the first eleven and a quarter dollars as they were pushed out by Mr. Glass. To my surprise, he pushed them past me and paid the next boy. I thought it was a mistake, for I had heretofore been paid first, but it followed in turn with each of the other boys. My heart began to sink within me. Disgrace seemed coming. What had I done, or not done? I was about to be told that there was no more work for me. I was to disgrace the family. That was the keenest pang of all. When all had been paid, and the boys were gone, Mr. Glass took me behind the counter, and said that I was worth more than the other boys, and he had resolved to pay me thirteen and a half dollars a month. My head swam. I doubted whether I had heard him correctly. He counted out the money. I don't know whether I thanked him. I don't believe I did. I took it and made one bound for the door, and scarcely stopped until I got home. I remember distinctly running, or rather bounding, from end to end of the bridge across the Allegheny River, inside on the wagon track, because a foot walk was too narrow. It was Saturday night. I handed over to Mother, who was the treasurer of the family, the eleven dollars and a quarter, and said nothing about the remaining two dollars and a quarter in my pocket. 
worth more to me then than all the millions I have made since. Tom, a little boy of nine, and myself slept in the attic together, and after we were safely in bed I whispered the secret to my dear little brother. Even at his early age he knew what it meant, and we talked over the future. It was then, for the first time, I sketched to him how we would go into business together, that the firm of Carnegie Brothers would be a great one, and that father and mother should yet ride in their carriage. At the time, that seemed to us to embrace everything known as wealth, and most of what was worth striving for. The old Scotchwoman, whose daughter married a merchant in London, being asked by her son-in-law to come to London and live near them, promising she should ride in her carriage, replied, "'What good could it do me to ride in a carriage, gin I could not be seen by the folk in Strathbogie? Father and mother would not only be seen in Pittsburgh, but should visit Dunfermline, their old home, in style.' On Sunday morning, with father, mother, and Tom at breakfast, I produced the extra two dollars and a quarter. The surprise was great, and it took some moments for them to grasp the situation, but it soon dawned upon them. Then, father's glance of loving pride, and mother's blazing eye, soon wet with tears, told their feeling. It was their boy's first triumph, and proof positive that he was worthy of promotion. No subsequent success or recognition of any kind ever thrilled me as this did. I cannot even imagine one that could. Here was heaven upon earth. My whole world was moved to tears of joy. Having to sweep out the operating room in the mornings, the boys had an opportunity of practicing upon the telegraph instruments before the operators arrived. This was a new chance I soon began to play with the key and to talk with the boys who were at the other stations who had like purposes to my own. Whenever one learns to do anything, he has never to wait long for an opportunity of putting his knowledge to use. One morning I heard the Pittsburgh call given with vigor. It seemed to me I could divine that someone wished greatly to communicate. I ventured to answer and let the slip run. It was Philadelphia that wanted to send a death message to Pittsburgh immediately. Could I take it? I replied that I would try if they would send slowly. I succeeded in getting the message and ran out with it. I waited anxiously for Mr. Brooks to come in and told him what I had dared to do. Fortunately, he appreciated it and complimented me instead of scolding me for my temerity, yet dismissing me with the admonition to be very careful and not to make mistakes. It was not long before I was called sometimes to watch the instrument while the operator wished to be absent, and in this way I learned the art of telegraphy. We were blessed at this time with a rather indolent operator who was only too glad to have me do his work. It was then the practice for us to receive the messages on a running slip of paper, from which the operator read to a copyist, but rumors had reached us that a man in the West had learned to read by sound and could really take a message by ear. This led me to practice the new method. One of the operators in the office, Mr. McLean, became expert at it and encouraged me by his success. I was surprised at the ease with which I learned the new language. One day, desiring to take a message in the absence of the operator, the old gentleman who acted as copyist resented my presumption and refused to copy for a messenger boy. I shut off the paper slip, took pencil and paper, and began taking the message by ear. I shall never forget his surprise. He ordered me to give him back his pencil and pad, and after that there was never any difficulty between dear old Courtney Hughes and myself. He was my devoted friend and copyist. Soon after this incident, Joseph Taylor, the operator at Greensburg, thirty miles from Pittsburgh, wished to be absent for two weeks, asked Mr. Brooks if he could not send someone to take his place. Mr. Brooks called me and asked whether I thought I could do the work. I replied at once in the affirmative. Well, he said, we will send you out there for a trial. I went out in the mail stage and had a most delightful trip. Mr. David Bruce, a well-known solicitor of Scottish ancestry, and his sister happened to be passengers. It was my first excursion and my first glimpse of the country. The hotel at Greensburg was the first public house in which I had ever taken a meal. I thought the food wonderfully fine. This was in 1852. 
Deep cuts and embankments near Greensburg were then being made for the Pennsylvania Railroad, and I often walked out in the early morning to see the work going forward, little dreaming that I was so soon to enter the service of that great corporation. This was the first responsible position I had occupied in the telegraph service, and I was so anxious to be at hand in case I should be needed. That one night, very late, I sat in the office during a storm, not wishing to cut off the connection. I ventured too near the key, and for my boldness, was knocked off my stool. A flash of lightning very nearly ended my career. After that, I was noted in the office for caution during lightning storms. I succeeded in doing the small business at Greensburg to the satisfaction of my superiors, and returned to Pittsburgh surrounded with something like a halo, so far as the other boys were concerned. Promotion soon came. A new operator was wanted, and Mr. Brooks telegraphed to my afterward dear friend James D. Reed, then general superintendent of the line, another fine specimen of the Scotsman, and took upon himself to recommend me as an assistant operator. The telegram from Louisville, in reply, stated that Mr. Reed highly approved of promoting Andy, provided Mr. Brooks considered him competent. The result was that I began as a telegraph operator at a tremendous salary of $25 per month, which I thought a fortune. To Mr. Brooks and Mr. Reed, I owe my promotion from the messenger station to the operating room. I was then in my seventeenth year and had served my apprenticeship. I was now performing a man's part, no longer a boy's, earning a dollar every working day. The operating room of a telegraph office is an excellent school for a young man. He there has to do with pencil and paper, with composition and invention. And there my slight knowledge of British and European affairs soon stood me in good stead. Knowledge is sure to prove useful in one way or another. It always tells. The foreign news was then received by wire from Cape Race, and the taking of successive steamer news was one of the most notable of our duties. I liked this better than any other branch of the work, and it was soon tacitly assigned to me. The lines in those days worked poorly, and during a storm much had to be guessed at. My guessing powers were said to be phenomenal, and it was my favorite diversion to fill up gaps instead of interrupting the sender and spending minutes over a lost word or two. This was not a dangerous practice in regard to foreign news, for if any undue liberties were taken by the bold operator, they were not of a character likely to bring him into serious trouble. My knowledge of foreign affairs became somewhat extensive, especially regarding the affairs of Britain, and my guesses were quite safe, if I got the first letter or two right. The Pittsburgh newspapers had each been in the habit of sending a reporter to the office to transcribe the press dispatches. Later on, one man was appointed for all the papers, and he suggested that multiple copies could readily be made of the news as received, and it was arranged that I should make five copies of all press dispatches for him as extra work, for which he was to pay me a dollar per week. This, my first work for the press, yielded very modest remuneration, to be sure, but it made my salary thirty dollars per month, and every dollar counted in those days. The family was gradually gaining ground. Already future millionairedom seemed dawning. Another step which exercised a decided influence over me was joining the Webster Literary Society along with my companions, the trusty five already named. We formed a select circle and stuck closely together. This was quite an advantage for all of us. We had before this formed a small debating club which met in Mr. Phipps' father's room, in which his few journeyman shoemakers worked during the day. Tom Miller recently alleged that I once spoke nearly an hour and a half upon the question, should the judiciary be elected by the people? But we must mercifully assume his memory to be at fault. The Webster was then the foremost club in the city, and proud were we to be thought fit for membership. We had merely been preparing ourselves in the cobbler's room. I know of no better mode of benefiting a youth than joining such a club as this. Much of my reading became such as had a bearing on forthcoming debates, and that gave clearness and fixity to my ideas. The self-possession I afterwards came to have before an audience may very safely be attributed to the experience of the Webster Society. My two rules for speaking then, 
and now, were, make yourself perfectly at home before your audience, and simply talk to them, not at them. Do not try to be somebody else. Be your own self, and talk, never orate, until you can't help it. I finally became an operator by sound, discarding printing entirely. The accomplishment was then so rare that people visited the office to be satisfied of the extraordinary feat. This brought me into such notice that when a great flood destroyed all telegraph communication between Steubenville and Wheeling, a distance of twenty-five miles, I was sent to the former town to receive the entire business then passing between the east and the west, and to send every hour or two the dispatches in small boats down the river to Wheeling. In exchange, every returning boat brought rolls of dispatches, which I wired east, and in this way, for more than a week, the entire telegraphic communication between the east and the west, via Pittsburgh, was maintained. While at Steubenville, I learned that my father was going to Wheeling and Cincinnati to sell the tablecloths he had woven. I waited for the boat, which did not arrive till late in the evening, and went down to meet him. I remember how deeply affected I was on finding that instead of taking a cabin passage, he had resolved not to pay the price, but to go down the river as a deck passenger. I was indignant that one of so fine a nature should be compelled to travel thus, and there was comfort in saying, Well, father, it will not be long before mother and you shall ride in your carriage. My father was usually shy, reserved, and keenly sensitive very saving of praise a scotch trait lest his sons might be too greatly uplifted but when touched he lost his self-control he was so upon this occasion and grasped my hand with a look which i often see and can never forget he murmured slowly andra i am proud of you the voice trembled and he seemed ashamed of himself for saying so much the tear had to be wiped from his eye I fondly noticed, as he bade me good night and told me to run back to my office. Those words rang in my ear and warmed my heart for years and years. We understood each other. How reserved the Scot is. Where he feels most, he expresses least. Quite right. There are holy depths which it is sacrilege to disturb. Silence is more eloquent than words. My father was one of the most lovable of men, beloved of his companions, deeply religious, although non-sectarian and non-theological, not much of a man of the world, but a man all over for heaven. He was kindness itself, although reserved. Alas, he passed away soon after returning from this western tour, just as we were becoming able to give him a life of leisure and comfort. After my return to Pittsburgh, it was not long before I made the acquaintance of an extraordinary man, Thomas A. Scott, one to whom the term genius in his department may safely be applied. He had come to Pittsburgh as superintendent of that division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Frequent telegraphic communication was necessary between him and his superior, Mr. Lombert, general superintendent at Altoona. This brought him to the telegraph office at nights, and upon several occasions I happened to be the operator. One day I was surprised by one of his assistants, with whom I was acquainted, telling me that Mr. Scott had asked him whether he thought that I could be obtained as his clerk and telegraph operator, to which this young man told me he had replied, That is impossible. He is now an operator. But when I heard this, I said at once, Not so fast. He can have me. I want to get out of a mere office life. Please go and tell him so. The result was, I was engaged February 1st, 1853, at a salary of $35 a month as Mr. Scott's clerk and operator. A raise in wages from 25 to $35 per month was the greatest I had ever known. The public telegraph line was temporarily put into Mr. Scott's office at the Outer Depot, and the Pennsylvania Railroad Company was given permission to use the wire at seasons when such use would not interfere with the general public business, until their own line, then being built, was completed. End of Chapter 5 Recording by William Tomko Chapter 6 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 6. Railroad Service. From the operating room of the telegraph office, I had now stepped into the open world, and the change at first was far from agreeable. I had just reached my eighteenth birthday, and I do not see how it could be possible for any boy to arrive at that age much freer from a knowledge of anything but what was pure and good. I do not believe, up to that time, I had ever spoken a bad word in my life, and seldom heard one. I knew nothing of the base and the vile. Fortunately, I had always been brought in contact with good people. I was now plunged at once into the company of coarse men, for the office was temporarily only a portion of the shops and the headquarters for the freight conductors, brakemen, and firemen. All of them had access to the same room with Superintendent Scott and myself, and they availed themselves of it. This was a different world, indeed, from that to which I had been accustomed. I was not happy about it. I ate, necessarily, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil for the first time. But there were still the sweet and pure surroundings of home, where nothing coarse or wicked ever entered, and besides, there was the world in which I dwelt with my companions, all of them refined young men, striving to improve themselves and become respected citizens. I passed through this phase of my life, detesting what was foreign to my nature and my early education. The experience with coarse men was probably beneficial, because it gave me a scunner, disgust, to use a Scotism, at chewing or smoking tobacco, also at swearing or the use of improper language, which fortunately remained with me through life. I do not wish to suggest that the men of whom I have spoken were really degraded or bad characters. The habit of swearing, with coarse talk, chewing, and smoking tobacco, at snuffing were more prevalent then than today, and meant less than in this age. Railroading was new, and many rough characters were attracted to it from the river service. But many of the men were fine young fellows who have lived to be highly respectable citizens and to occupy responsible positions. And I must say that one and all of them were most kind to me. Many are yet living from whom I hear occasionally and regard with affection. A change came at last when Mr. Scott had his own office, which he and I occupied. I was soon sent by Mr. Scott to Altoona to get the monthly payrolls and checks. The railroad line was not completed over the Allegheny Mountains at that time, and I had to pass over the inclined plains which made the journey a remarkable one to me. Altoona was then composed of a few houses built by the company. The shops were under construction, and there was nothing of the large city which now occupies the site. It was there that I saw for the first time the great man in our railroad field, Mr. Lombert, General Superintendent. His secretary at that time was my friend, Robert Pitcairn, for whom I had obtained a situation on the railroad, so that Davy, Bob, and Andy were still together in the same service. We had all left the telegraph company for the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. Mr. Lombert was very different from Mr. Scott. He was not sociable, but rather stern and unbending. Judge then of Robert's surprise and my own when, after saying a few words to me, Mr. Lombert added, You must come down and take tea with us tonight. I stammered out something of acceptance and awaited the appointed hour with great trepidation. Up to this time, I considered that invitation the greatest honor I had received. Mrs. Lombert was exceedingly kind, and Mr. Lombert's introduction of me to her was, This is Mr. Scott's Andy. I was very proud indeed of being recognized as belonging to Mr. Scott. An incident happened on this trip, which might have blasted my career for a time. I started next morning for Pittsburgh, with the payrolls and checks, as I thought, securely placed under my waistcoat, as it was too large a package for my pockets. I was a very enthusiastic railroader at that time, and preferred riding upon the engine. I got upon the engine that took me to Hollidaysburg, where the state railroad over the mountain was joined up. It was a very rough ride, indeed, and at one place, uneasily feeling for the payroll package, I was horrified to find that the jolting of the train had shaken it out. I had lost it. 
There was no use in disguising the fact that such a failure would ruin me. To have been sent for the payrolls and checks and to lose the package, which I should have grasped as my honor, was a dreadful showing. I called the engineer and told him it must have been shaken out within the last few miles. Would he reverse his engine and run back for it? Kind soul, he did so. I watched the line, and on the very banks of a large stream, within a few feet of the water, I saw that package lying. I could scarcely believe my eyes. I ran down and grasped it. It was all right. Need I add that it never passed out of my firm grasp again until it was safe in Pittsburgh? The engineer and fireman were the only persons who knew of my carelessness, and I had their assurance that it would not be told. It was long after the event that I ventured to tell the story. Suppose that package had fallen just a few feet farther away and been swept down by the stream. How many years of faithful service would it have required upon my part to wipe out the effect of that one piece of carelessness? I could no longer have enjoyed the confidence of those whose confidence was essential to success had fortune not favored me. I have never 